0: I'm going to pray with Elisa before she um, brings her words to us today. Loving God, we're so thankful for Elisa. We're thankful for the gifts that you have given to her and that she so freely shares with us. We thank you for the calls to pastoral ministry that you've placed on her. We ask that you now open our ears and our hearts to hear the message that you have prompted for her to share with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You know, uh, much of my work over the last 12 uh, to 13 years, has been to uh, be in support of people with intellectual disabilities. And one of the common life experiences of people with disabilities or impairments of various kind is that um, in the eyes of others, a person can very easily have their identity reduced to that of their impairment or their you know, that one characteristic, that one diagnosis, one label. And uh, that that lensing in the eyes of society can really have some, some devastating impacts on people. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because as I've been kind of sitting with this story for a while, I think that the church is probably pretty pretty guilty of exacting this wound on one of the main characters of the story we're sitting with. And of course, I am talking about Thomas, but we all know him as what? Doubting Doubting Thomas. What a way to be known. And, you know, I think that this lensing that we've experienced throughout church history has sometimes clouded our ability to see some really uh, insightful aspects of this story. So I'm really excited to explore this today with you. Um, You know, and it is important that as we kind of sit with this story, we have it in the context of of what has just happened before. Um, One of the things that I have been nerding out over over the last year, and I do tend to nerd out a lot, um, is uh, I've been listening to this podcast called the Bema Discipleship Podcast, and they explore Western Hebraic literary devices that are used in scripture. Now I'm not going to talk to you about Hebrew literary devices this morning so don't worry, but having that insight and reflection has helped me to notice some of the patterns that we see in the storytelling that we're observing. So I invite you to uh, to hear some of those patterns with me. So last week, we heard quite beautifully represented by Eliana and Soren and Laura and Randy, uh, the story of Mary and her encounter with Jesus, the risen Christ in the garden. And, uh, And as Jesus interacts with Mary, she goes running back to announce that she has just seen the risen Lord. She tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. It's an exciting proclamation. And then we open up our scripture today. It's the same day, it's Sunday, it's Easter. And we find the disciples hidden in a room in the evening, in the dark and uh, they are feeling all kinds of things. They're hunkered down, doors bolted, they're terrified. And this group of people who have witnessed very likely the most horrific experience of their entire lives, their friend and teacher brutally murdered not only at the hands of their Roman occupiers, but at the treachery of their very own religious leaders. And they're trying to wrap their minds around what has just happened. And we don't necessarily get the sense, given the scene that we're entering, that they've really taken to heart what Mary has exclaimed, do we? And biblical scholars suggest that it wasn't just the 10 apostles that were sitting in this room, but really a crowd of disciples that had been following Jesus. There's reason to believe both men and women were in this space together, all huddled together, hunkled down, waiting in the night, in their grief, in their fear, in their doubt, and in hiding and after what can only really be described as a religious and political charade that they've observed, a complete miscarriage of justice. And in the wake of this unrest, those closest to Jesus have some daunting questions. Is this it? What do we do? Where can we go? Who can we trust? Are we even safe? And you know, as I was sitting in this story, I was wondering if we were not feeling this ourselves to some extent. Grieving the loss of loved ones, ourselves concerned for the safety of friends and family in the face of racism, political unrest, bigotry, hatred, even war that we are seeing devastating countries around us, not knowing who we can trust amid very polarizing reports and intentional trafficking of misinformation for the profit of others. And wondering, is it safe to resurface? Has anyone wondered that in the past year? And how profound is it that in the heart of our own proverbial nighttime, we see in the second half of verse 19 that Jesus is coming through locked doors and entering into the darkness to stand among them. And when Jesus comes to them, he does a few things to lift their spirits, right? To relieve them of their fear and doubt. First, he brings that greeting of peace. Peace be with you. <laughs> and, and you know, as I was researching this passage, Scholars were very quick to point out that this was a very common greeting of the time, right? This was a way, we see it peppered all throughout the New Testament, peace be with you. But you know, it's a really common greeting for a pretty uncommon encounter, right? They have just seen the risen Lord, their friend who they thought was dead, right? A very uncommon situation. It makes the words ring a little differently. And he reiterates that message. Peace is in the commissioning of the disciples as he's sending them out to share what they have seen. Peace be with you. And then the next thing he does is he invites them to take a look at his punctured hands, right? And his wounded side He invites them to look and in fact in the Luke account of this encounter he asks them do you guys have any food (laughs) he's hungry right this is an embodiment and as you walk through from Mary's encounter to the disciples encounter Jesus is becoming a little more tactile right and present This is no ghost, Jesus. This is not an apparition. It's not a hallucination. This is an embodied Christ standing among them, present to them. And then Jesus' final act with this group of huddled disciples is to breathe on them. And here in the subtle, moist, breath of Jesus, the disciples are imbued with the Holy Spirit. And it is subtle, isn't it? You know, it was funny returning to this story because I kind of almost forgot about that imbuing. Did anyone else? Like, I remember tongues descending from the heavens and people bursting out in all these different languages and the power of the Holy Spirit, but this is a very different invocation. It's subtle. It's quiet. In this moment of breathing, the comforter enters their midst. And it's a recurring image throughout scripture. Jesus or God breathing life into things. God breathes life into the dust forming humanity. God breathes life in Ezekiel to a valley of dead, dry bones, bringing life and resurrection and renewal. And in this small, dark, locked room, we see Jesus breathing not just life, but the very presence of God into the gathering of weary followers. God is present in the breath. Now, how incredible is that? That the sign of the comforter among us is in the thing that we can't spend one waking or sleeping moment not doing. It's in the breath. It's constant. His presence is among us. And poor Thomas misses the whole thing. <laughs> He's out. He's nowhere to be seen, right? And so when the spirit-filled followers come telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Have we heard that one before? Thomas's reaction wasn't all that different from their own, was it? And he proclaims perhaps a little bit more firmly, Guys, come on, unless I can touch it, unless I can see him, I wanna see for myself, right? I won't believe. He wants to touch the embodied Christ. So Jesus visits again. What a beautiful (laughs) sentiment to reflect on. Jesus visits again. And in the NRSV, we hear that the doors were shut, but in many of the other translations of this passage, in verse 26, the doors are locked again, right? He enters again through locked doors. So I'm starting to wonder if doubting Thomas is the one that we really should be worried about, right? Because even in the presence of the comforter, those doors were locked again. And I think that can be instructive to us. Because sometimes we end up closing up again, don't we? Even after the encounter, even in the midst of the breath. So following the invocation of the spirit among them, we find the disciples a week later in a similar state. And we can imagine as Jesus enters into this physical space, him reaching out his hand and grasping Thomas's gently. Put your finger here, Thomas. And put your hand and reaching out and guiding his arm to his wounded side. Place it on my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And it is Thomas who is credited with what R.C. Sproul, a, a famous theologian, refers to as the clearest and simplest confession of the deity of Christ to be found in the whole of the New Testament. My God and my Lord. And this occurrence of the word Lord is actually the Greek translation of the Hebraic Yahweh. There is an unequivocal announcement that Thomas is making as he is touching the embodied Jesus. And uh, the theologian Gail R. O'Day suggests that perhaps it's not in the touching of Jesus that leads Thomas to this confession of faith, but Jesus' gracious offer of himself. And we see that offering become more tactile throughout these three stories, don't we? This first encounter where Jesus says, Mary, don't touch me, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. And then Jesus' encounter with the group of disciples where he says, take a look, just look at me. And then in Thomas' severe mistrust of the world around him, we see the embodied Jesus saying, touch, feel my side. Now, some of you were present for the last time that I was able to share. I was invited to come and talk about um, my experience navigating the Beatitudes last summer with a group of teens at Laurelville camp. And as I was studying the Beatitudes, um, one of the, one of the really insightful interpretations that I found was that the blessing of the Beatitudes was present. God is present to those who mourn. God is present to the peacemakers and so forth. And um, you can imagine my surprise having really felt a strong reawakening of my call in navigating and exploring those scriptures, that our, our scripture today ends with a B attitude. He said, blessed are those. Thomas, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. And it's not just a beatitude, it's a beatitude that is specifically geared toward us. For us who are perhaps behind locked doors, for those of us perhaps navigating some spiritual night times, that we are blessed, in our not having seen and still leaning in and grappling and trying to figure out what does it mean to walk with Jesus the blessing is presence and the symbol of the blessing